0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
2: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
3: Good evening, listeners.
2: Good evening, listeners. Good evening. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia.
0: And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our Twitter and podcast pages.
2: This episode of Inspiration Dissemination was is recorded live, and we are excited to be joined by Hannah Stu. Hannah is a second-year PhD student in biochemistry and biophysics, and her research is all about the proteins encoded by the SARS-CoV-2 covid two virus. Welcome to the show, Hannah.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Of course. So we're here to talk today about your research, um, as well as your your story of how you got to Oregon State um, and your journey so far. Um, do you want to start off with just a basic summary of what it is you do here?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, so in broad strokes, I work on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and specifically, I do biophysical characterization of a very specific protein that is essential for viral function. So to kind of understand some of the really specific stuff that I work on, it's nice to get a sort of general view of how the virus functions. Mm -hmm. So essentially the SARS-CoV-2 virus has four structural proteins that it's comprised of. So that's spike, which Most people are familiar with, which is on the outside of the virus, and it docks to the ACE2 receptor on human host cells and deals with viral entry. On top of that, there's uh, three other structural proteins, and the one that I'm interested in is called the nucleocapsid protein, and it's of importance because it is the only structural protein that directly interacts with the viral RNA genome. Mm -hmm. So it essentially acts uh, to package, and compact up the RNA genome in the center of the virus. So that is the protein that I work on. Um, and I do biophysical characterization of that protein.
2: Very cool. So yeah, as you mentioned, the the spike protein is kind of the one that has gotten all the in- attention for, um, for developing therapeutics. Um, but so does, what do you think of the role of the nucleocapsid um, in some of these things that might lead to therapies and, and why, why is it interesting to study?
3: Yeah. So spike is also a super cool protein Mm -hmm. and it does a lot of um, very interesting biophysical stuff. Um, And it's the obvious choice for vaccine development because it's on the outside of the virus and you have antibodies that can target it. And that's what you want to develop immunity for Mm -hmm. essentially. Nucleocapsid protein you can't necessarily target for vaccine development because it's internal to the virus particle. Mm. But since it's so essential for packaging the virus and for the viral life cycle, um, it's something that could potentially be targeted for therapeutics after infection. So post-infection therapeutics are where it would be more interesting rather than vaccine development and preventing that initial infection.
2: So you've already gotten sick. Maybe you've had a a breakthrough infection Mm -hmm. on your vaccine. How do we treat you after that? This is potentially where this comes into play. Yeah,
3: that would be the the clinical interest Mm -hmm. for this protein.
0: So taking it back a little bit, biophysics is not necessarily something that everyone knows a lot about. Like, biochemistry gets a lot of attention, but biophysics is a little bit out there. So how would you describe what biophysics is?
3: Yes. Um, So I would say biochemistry and biophysics are deeply intertwined. Um, And here at Oregon State, our biochemistry department is biochemistry and biophysics. Mm -hmm. So it is lumped into one. Um, Biophysics in its simplest form is characterizing physical properties of biomolecules Um, and it's tied up with like structural biology a lot of the time so biophysics is sort of taking physics and physics-based techniques to understand the physical property of biomolecules and so for me specifically my biomolecule of interest is a protein but there's people that do biophysics on lipids and maybe lipid protein complexes and whatever biomolecule you might have.
2: And um, I think we forgot to mention your your advisor is Professor LSR Barbar, correct? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are a second, second year PhD student, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting that something that, you know, has affected all of our lives for the last couple of years, the, the COVID pandemic, um, beginning to think about it in terms of a molecular basis. So how how do some of these properties that really are important for the disease as we think of it, how do they emerge from molecular resolution details?
3: So you're asking, I guess, how sort of these like very molecular level processes kind of sum up to a disease, I guess?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, Like what are presumably this, this virus has to grow, it has to spread, what are some of the things we can say at the, the smallest level about how those processes take place?
3: Right, okay. So, like I said, the virus obviously requires, you know, very specific proteins to dock onto host cells and that spike. Mm-hmm. After that initial viral entry into the host cell, the sort of, like, viral particle disassembles And then it releases its RNA genome, and it does what viruses do, and it hijacks your host cell machinery to make more of itself Mm -hmm. because that's what viruses do. And the nucleocapsid protein is super interesting because it's very, very pivotal in this infection cycle. Mm -hmm. So nucleocapsid protein is like the highest transcribed after host cell entry, and it is churning out a bunch of it and it gets uh, chemically modified by host cell proteins, so it gets phosphorylated. And it goes through a process called liquid-liquid phase separation, Mm. which sounds very complicated, but it's essentially making droplets within solution and condensing into sort of like liquid-like or gel-like forms, which create these tiny replication transcription complexes where... It is the virus is essentially utilizing all this host cell machinery to make more of itself, transcribe more of the proteins that it needs to form more virus particles. And then, nucleocapsid protein again is super important in taking the RNA genome, condensing it down. It gets all wrapped up into a nice viral package and then is expelled from the cell once again. Mm. So understanding the really like minute details of how these proteins provide these functions informs us of ways to disrupt that. And in my case, I'm looking at sort of mutations that have been occurring in variants of COVID and seeing how those mutations might make those processes more efficient or effective. And again, helps us inform how this viral cycle is happening and hopefully can give us more leads onto how to treat it, basically. So I hope that answered your question. Oh, for sure. So
0: we're looking at things on like a very, very small level. Yeah. Uh, so how does one study it? Because uh, you can't see it under a microscope, mm-hmm. so
3: obviously you need to use different methods. Right. So that is the fun part. So there's a lot of different what we call biophysical techniques for looking at proteins. Um, you know, some of them used circularly polarized light and the diffraction of that light can tell us things about a protein and how it's structured. Some of it we uh, diffracting, uh, different wavelengths of light off of something. And the scattering tells us about like size. Um, and in my case, I primarily use NMR spectroscopy. So for those unfamiliar, NMR stands for nuclear magnetic resonance. Um, And it's basically the exact same machinery as if you've ever gotten an MRI. An Mm -hmm. MRI and NMR are literally the exact same machinery. It's just that in healthcare, they don't like to use the word nuclear. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like the same technique. So I'm essentially taking liquid samples of the proteins of interest that I have and putting them in a giant magnet and sort of putting a uniform electromagnetic field around it and perturbing it with a pulse sequence. And I can do many different kinds of experiments that can tell me about how it's moving dynamically, what parts of it are structured and rigid. Um, I can do binding experiments with RNA. Uh, there's a multitude of experiments that you can do with NMR uh, that tell you a lot about proteins.
2: And you mentioned some of those older methods, um- Using X ray diffraction, I think it is. Um, could you speak to some of the strengths of NMR um, relative to those older methods?
3: Oh, yeah, that's a very fun question. Um, so, canonically, it seems that biophysics sort of became a discipline when X ray crystallography really became widely usable. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people might be familiar with, I think it's like photo 51 or 52. I always forget the exact number, but it's Rosalind Franklin's x-ray diffraction image of DNA. And that's like how they determined that DNA was a double helix was x-ray crystallography. Um, so that is like some of the first biophysics really, um, in structural biology where we're trying to figure out how things are shaped. How do, how do they look when we can't see them with the naked eye? In using different methods to do that. Right. Um, X-ray crystallography is a great technique, and when NMR for proteins started to become more accessible and more of a regular technique, people thought, "Oh, it's going to you know replace X-ray crystallography." Um, but it really, I would say, hasn't done that, and mm-hmm. it's still a very like widely used technique and like very good for very certain things. It is not as good for proteins that don't have a lot of structure. So proteins I work with a lot have a lot of... X-ray
2: crystallography is not Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So the proteins I work a lot with are intrinsically disordered. Mm -hmm. um, So they don't have like rigid folds to them. So they don't crystallize well and therefore you can't do X-ray crystallography on them. Um, So NMR is great for those proteins where it wouldn't be good for x-ray. And really NMR is great for things like dynamics. So like how something is flexible and moving, whereas x-ray crystallography is not for that. Um, And then sort of the new frontier of like instrumentation for the field is cryo EM,
1: Mm
3: -hmm. uh, which sort of solves the like, oh, we can't crystallize a protein problem by uh, vitrifying a sample. So it's, like, cooled to the point where it's not moving, but it's also not crystallized. Okay. Um, And they're able to do uh, electron microscope imaging of those things to get structures and stuff. Uh, So there's, like, a whole slew of techniques you can use, and each one has their benefits – and downsides, and it really depends on the system you're looking at, and really one technique doesn't rule them all.
0: Sure. You said a fun fact during your pre-interview that I think Oregon State has the largest magnet on the West Coast. Yeah.
3: Oh yes. Okay. So, plug for the uh, OSU NMR facility were great, um, and shout out to Patrick Reardon, who's the facility director. Um, and just an incredible mentor for NMR. But yeah, OSU has an 800 megahertz magnet, which is the largest in the state of Oregon. And I think it's the second largest in the Pacific Northwest. I think there's one larger at, oh, it's somewhere in San Francisco, but I don't remember. One of the
2: national labs or?
3: I think it's, it might be like Stanford Medical Center or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Um, But yeah, We have a big magnet, which is great for biomolecules because you need the extra power. So anyone out there from other places that wants to do biomolecular NMR, this is the place to be.
2: And so um, there are a couple different types of NMR, right, Um, that are relevant for, for biomolecules.
3: Yeah. So when we talk about different types, NMR... We're looking at very specific nuclei, um, and, you know, we're sort of probing with electromagnetism specific nuclei of the molecules Mm -hmm. we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So in most organic chemistry classes, when you learn organic chemistry, they have a section on NMR, and you get a spectrum that has, like, peaks on it, and... You know, the bottom axis says parts per million, Mm -hmm. and it's usually, like, hydrogen or proton. Um, And that's essentially tracking the hydrogen molecules for whatever compound you have. What I'm doing is essentially the same thing, but I'm doing another dimension of an experiment where I'm also probing the nitrogen nuclei. So... Proteins made of amino acids that are primarily composed of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. So when looking at proteins, you can sort of divide up the information into multi-dimensions or multiple axes where you're looking at the different nuclei and sort of how they relate to each other.
2: Mm-hmm. What do we do with the carbons?
3: Oh, you can you can also do carbons. So you can do... Uh, three- and four-dimensional experiments okay. where you have uh, multiple nuclei or, like, multiple time domains. So you're splitting up information into a bunch of different dimensions.
2: Okay. But a, a tractable way to do it is to take the two dimensions of hydrogen and nitrogen and sort of look at that as a, as a two-dimensional space?
3: hmm Yeah. So to sort of visualize this when you're just listening to me here for Mm -hmm. all you out there listening to the radio, um, when you do, uh, we'll say a two dimensional, uh, experiment for hydrogen, nitrogen, uh, HSQC experiment is like what we consider like a fingerprint experiment. Um, and it looks sort of like a topographical map when you get it out. Mm -hmm. So you have these two axes and all of these peaks, that have sort of like topographical map sort of intensity if you can imagine looking at that Um, and each individual peak is actually corresponding to like an amino acid within the protein chain which is awesome because we can get like like site-specific resolution of what's happening within a protein so it's really powerful in that sense.
0: So with the amino acids, because those are what interacts in a protein to, like, make its shape and everything, can you, from these pictures, actually make, like, a model of a protein, or does it get more complex with that? Yeah,
3: so to make a protein structure from NMR data, you have to collect sort of a lot of experiments. So this is where carbon comes in, so you can do sort of a suite of different like multi-dimensional experiments where each one is sort of tracking the magnetization from like carbon to nitrogen, carbon to nitrogen to oxygen or hydrogen to carbon to nitrogen or whatever. So you're sort of tracking the magnetization through each of those bonds. Um, and then from that, someone like me <laughs> sits down and goes through like all of these peaks and like a Sudoku puzzle Pieces together which peaks correspond to which amino acids. Um, And then with some additional uh, experimentation of sort of like which things are close together through space, which things are close together through bonds, you sort of slowly piece together this image of a protein Mm -hmm. and eventually get you like a complete structure of it. Is there a specific amino acid that has a cooler picture than others? <laughs> um, well, let's see. Some some amino acids, like, show up in the same spot in spectra, like, over and over again. So, like, glycines are always in one region, and I love those because I'm like, they're there for me. <laughs> I know <laughs> exactly where they are. The
2: North Star.
0: Yeah, basically. <laughs> so you are only in your second year, so obviously many more years of research to go. So where do you see, like, the direction of your research going or do you see it staying kind
3: of stagnant or any areas you hope to explore? Um, The great thing about working in COVID research is there, well, maybe I shouldn't say it's a great thing, but the job security of it is there because there's always more mutations to probe for. So like nucleocapsid protein that I work on is like highly mutated in all of the variants that we've seen. So Delta, Omicron, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of research out there that like directly correlates the mutations in nucleocapsid protein with increased virulence. So I have tons of protein, uh, mutations to look at (laughs) to sort of probe for their effects basically. So that's like my huge thing right now is looking at different mutations mm-hmm. uh and sort of determining how how does it make it do its job better basically.
2: And so it's not just a an image of the or a model image of the protein that you built up it's actually sort of like a video of like how it can change with different tweaks. Does it ever get to that point?
3: Uh no, so I don't We don't get to a point where we have like a video per se, um, but we can get data that tells us like which regions are generally like more flexible um, or which regions might be associating with itself. So like if you have two copies of the same protein and it might be sticking together at one point and forming what we call a dimer, um, you can be able to like see where that's happening Um, or if you're gaining or losing structure when you have, like, some sort of binding interaction Mm -hmm. or something like that. So we have data that informs us about, like, flexibility and dynamics, but we don't ever really make, like, videos of that, per se. But now I kind of want to. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: And so you you mentioned that it's a huge sort of space to explore of the possible mutations, possible... um, the protein itself. But I, as I understand, you have focused on a smaller stretch of the nucleocapsid.
3: Yeah. So the nucleocapsid protein itself, like the full length protein, uh, forms a, a dimer, a stable dimer, which it, it just means that two copies of the protein stick together at one specific point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that structure of the protein has like, uh, a more rigid structural spot where it dimerizes, a sort of loose spaghetti linker region, and then another more structured spot where it binds RNA. So it's kind of like one joining point and then two arms branching off of it that grab onto RNA. Um, and the part that I've been really interested in is this really disordered, not super structured part that like links together the two more structured regions. Um, And it's important for a couple of reasons. It is the site that gets like phosphorylated upon host cell entry, which is a huge part of like the regulation between replicating parts of the virus to packaging the virus. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, like a molecular switch in that region. So that's super important. And that region is the part of nucleocapsid protein that has been the most mutated in variants. So, mm. all of those mutations are increasing ver- or uh, increasing virulence. So, trying to figure out how they're doing that and how they're making a virus more efficient is super interesting.
2: So, this region kind of controls the the trade off between maybe we can think of it as like two different sort of states of where it, it's it's ready to be transcribed and it's ready to be exported.
3: Yeah, totally. So this small region acting like this little like molecular switch, basically between it gets phosphorylated and it has a super open, loose configuration and it can go through that like liquid, liquid phase separation process Mm -hmm. um, and create these basically tiny bubbles where uh, all of that cellular machinery and virus stuff is able to make more of itself so that I can then go on to assemble, which is this other step where it's not phosphorylated. It's more tight and condensed, and it's able to wrap up the RNA genome super, super tight and condensed, form a fully formed virus particle, and then expel it from the cell. So yeah, it's, it's this switch mechanism between those two processes of replication and packaging
2: And are, are we able to relate those two processes to uh, like higher level aspects of the of the disease, like its severity and its its um, spreadability? Because yeah. those kind of sound like um, yeah. my brain is wanting to draw a connection between the ability to create more particles as being about severity or something versus export as being about spread. Yeah, and but I don't know if I'm doing that right.
3: No, no, that's the super right instinct for sure. And it's like, that's kind of where like my data stops being able to tell me yes or no on those things and where I start to have to kind of infer like mm-hmm. what the biological function is. Um, Cause what my data tells me is yes, absolutely. There's this open and closed configuration, I know that there's differences in RNA binding and I have like these concrete answers and I can speculate that that's what's happening inside the cell when they're making the virus. But I have the inclination with you as well. Mm-hmm. of I think that's probably going to have a lot to do with like how much RNA can it grab? It's binding tighter. Like it, you can make more virus particles. So that's in my mind, a reasonable assumption mm-hmm. but i want to be careful and say i don't have the data to right. support that. so it's
2: really like an empirical question of how these mutations kind of
3: affect those properties yeah yeah so further like virus particle assembly assays would definitely be needed for that uh which i might have not have the biosafety level to do right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this all just shows how
0: big of a puzzle that like solving yeah. this issue is it's yeah. not just like One person can solve all the problems with so many different little aspects.
3: Yeah. All of COVID, like there's the epidemiologists, there's virologists, there's people that do like the really small molecular work like me. There's people that do the big level clinical work. Like it's a whole, it's a city. It takes a city. (laughs) So...
0: Let's go back into a little bit of your background. Was it your dream to work on a national pandemic-causing virus?
3: (laughs) Um, I definitely did not expect to work on what I work on now. Uh, And I feel like I sort of happened into it. And I love my research. I love what I do now. But it, it wasn't like what I set out to do, but I don't think I necessarily set out to do anything specifically. Uh, I went to undergrad at Oregon State, and I got a biochemistry and molecular biology degree. So after I graduated, I sort of didn't know what I wanted to do, so I got a job working research and development for an industrial hemp and CBD company, so I was doing uh, like, cannabinoid chemistry, basically. Um, And at the time, I thought that was something I wanted to do because I thought I was going to go into, like, natural products research eventually. Um, And then a pandemic happened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think, like, a lot of people, I thought, well, now's the time to start applying to grad school uh, because there's not much else to do. Yeah. And I reached out to a former professor here at Oregon State, and I said, I'd love a letter of recommendation. I'm going to start applying to grad schools. And she said, oh, yeah, that's great. Definitely we will do that. Also, would you like a job? (laughs) We're doing COVID research. (laughs) Um, So I came back to Oregon State, started uh, working as a tech, just a lab tech working on this COVID research, uh, and eventually got persuaded to just come to grad school here. Oh, well, you were already here. I was already mm-hmm. here. It just made sense. <laughs> uh, but it's been it's been good.
2: How, so a lot of us sometimes in, our, in your PhD, you have to. It's difficult to explain the specifics of how your research relates to the general public. But in your case, it's it's very very apparent, I think, to everybody. So yeah. how does that feel? <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, it's. I feel like. People definitely ask me a lot more questions when they know what I work on, um, and sometimes they ask me questions way out of the scope of what I'm qualified to answer. Because, like, like I said before, COVID research is like epidemiologists and virologists and all sorts of people. So, like, when my parents ask me about like very specific COVID stuff, I might not necessarily know the answer. <laughs> because it's not directly related to, like, protein-level information, mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. say. Um, I think it's good uh, leading up to my prelim, definitely, <laughs> because I really have to know my background information.
0: will really help with that lit review.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, um yeah as we as we mentioned um some of the the motivation for for this is is to think about how these properties could affect therapies um so how do you foresee the next couple of years you know assuming that there's gonna be mutations um assuming that it will still be with us for mm-hmm. a while um how do you think that will change your research and what do you foresee for? sort of the landscape of, like, what these kinds of studies could contribute to understanding it?
3: Yeah, so I think my dream for, like, how my research would have a bigger impact would be, of like, eventually finding something, hopefully, like, some sort of small molecule or compound or drug that we could get to, let's say, inhibit nucleocapsid binding to like crucial binding partners or even to the RNA genome. So in theory, if you had good drug delivery, you could have a therapeutic for people who have been infected, um, especially like really high risk people Mm -hmm. um, and be able to disrupt the virus from being able to form itself. So you wouldn't have proliferation of the virus within the body. Um, But that's, you know, likely a long ways off because even if I like found that thing that disrupts binding, uh, like methods of drug delivery and clinical trials and all of those things take a a long time. Yeah. But science is a lot slower process than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah. Yeah. So do you
1: foresee, uh,
3: Again, you have a little bit more
0: in your degree, but do you foresee staying maybe on this more medical side of the biophysics, or are there different areas you'd want to explore in like a career, academia, industry? Mm.
3: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I do really like working with viral proteins, um, but in theory, with like my skill set, I could work with any proteins mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sky's the limit, <laughs> and I think I, I would enjoy working on any sort of, like, structural biology, protein structure type work. Um, and as far as, like, what I'm going to do, I don't really know yet. <laughs> it's I got a million-dollar question for yeah. all grad
0: students.
2: <laughs> well, well, one thing you're going to do is um, you will be joining the Inspiration Dissemination team.
3: That's true. Yeah.
2: So how did you get an interest in in science communication?
3: Um... Well, I think partially because I do COVID research, I realize how important effective science communication is because we all know that COVID is highly politicized. There's lots of misinformation and like effective and approachable science communication is good for everybody. Um, And I found out about the show because a former lab member Mm -hmm. in my lab was also a host. Uh, Heather Mason Forsyth we love Heather Um, so that's how I found out about the show and started wanting to be involved
2: yeah we've been glad to have you on
3: yeah that's definitely a great way to get
0: the research out there let people know all of the amazing things science can do All
2: right, so I think we can begin to um, wind up and so we always have a couple of traditions that we do uh, on the show Um, One of which is, we always ask, what is your favorite part about your research?
3: I think my favorite part is finding things that you realize maybe in the moment or maybe even later that no one else in the world might have figured out yet. Mm -hmm. And that's very satisfying. (laughs) Okay, our next question
0: is if you could give a piece of advice to anyone at all, your younger self, another grad student, an undergrad, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Hmm,
3: Uh, I was thinking about this a lot before coming on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think if I had to give like general grad school advice Mm -hmm. to anyone, it would be to really advocate for yourself and take care of yourself because there's a, high probability that no one else is going to actively be doing that for you. And grad school can be like super harsh and unfortunately even like exploitative at times. And like you as a person matter so much more than a degree Mm. and you need to take care of yourself and you need to advocate for yourself and take care of yourself first because it's important.
2: Very true. Um, so our, our final tradition is that you get to pick a song to be your outro. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about the song we're about to hear? Um, I suspect it's, it's one of the ways that you live out taking care of yourself and having time (laughs) outside of the, um, the lab.
3: (laughs) Okay. So I, maybe this is a shameless self plug, but I don't care. This is, uh, my band church Ladies. Uh, this is an unreleased cover of the song Stayin' Alive" by the Bee Gees. Um, we recorded this last year, and it, it, this is a rough mix, and we haven't even sent it out for mastering yet. So, I'm I'm leaking my own leaking song. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, don't be too harsh on it. It has not been mastered. Uh, but yeah, this is the cover of Stayin' Alive." Staying Alive by Church Ladies.
2: Perfect. And with that, um, just wanted to say again, thanks for being on the show. Um, and thanks for tuning in to Inspiration Dissemination. Thank you. you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
3: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamon. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.